0: your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and absolutely everything is connected. Honestly, investigators, in the abundance of riches that are the stories within our universe of Dominic Dunn, the major question is, which thread do we pull from the week before? There are multiple threads in our tapestry to choose from within the last few episodes that will connect us further into the universe of Dominic Dunn. And today we are headed back into Laurel Canyon with the story of a home. Just one home on Woodrow Wilson Drive. This street is way up Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Woodrow Wilson Drive lives over off to the east. It's an offshoot of where Laurel Canyon Boulevard intersects with Mulholland Drive. But there's a new build on Woodrow Wilson that happens in the mid-1950s after all those cut-throughs have been made. And this home is built for the family of a famous child star working her way into adulthood at the time who will become a legend. This legend is Natalie Wood, a lady of the canyon you might not be familiar with. Natalie Wood was in the mix for a little while and will have quite a life. At this home on Woodrow Wilson, but not that it ends with her. This one home has quite a storied history in Hollywood and to me is a wonderful example of the echoes in each of our seasons where we talk about community, colony. We build these ideas within our spider connected world and the story is a great example of it. Before we get into our story today, I do want to give some tremendous shout outs to our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. I got my spyglass out and I spy Erica V and Heidi F in it. Thank you. Y'all are incredible. Thank you for joining the Dun and done community. Your support is really, truly appreciated as are you investigators. Thanks for joining me today. I'm so glad you're here today in this investigation. We're going to talk about the one and only Natalie Wood, her connection into Laurel Canyon, and all of the threads connected into the universe that is our man, Nick's. Let's investigate. home in Laurel Canyon on Woodrow Wilson Drive, built in the mid-1950s by the parents of Natalie Wood, who will in the next decade be the prettiest girl at Nick and Lenny's 1964 black and white ball. Natalie Wood, famous child star turned legend. We begin today with part of her story. Natalie Wood was born July the 10th, 1938, to Russian immigrants. Her father lives very much in the old world. And Natalie's mother is holding on to her own long-ago lost dreams of stardom. And here comes sweet Natalia into the world, the middle child with sisters on both ends, and the family will move to California. And there's a day when little Natalia is four years old, and there's a movie that's filming near the family home. And Mud, as Natalia's mother is called in the family, We'll get her middle child all dolled up and bring her down to the movie set and continue to parade little Natalia back and forth in front of the director of the film. The director will finally break down and say, yeah, I do need a kid. Hey, kid, can you walk across the street holding this ice cream cone? But the thing is, kid, I need you to drop it and cry. Do you think you can do that? Natalia's mother, Mudd, is extremely confident that Natalia can pull off this gig. The director is so awed by the performance that little four-year-old Natalia gives. Ice cream has never been dropped with such panache. Honestly, Natalia kills the very tiny role, and the director is like, Hey, overprotective mom lady, you're right. This kid does have talent, and one day, I'm going to come back for her. Stay ready. And Mud will. And that director will too. When Natalia's six, much to dad having no clue any of this is happening, Mud and Natalia head on down to Los Angeles to just have a little meeting with the head of Universal Studios, William Getz. William Getz, remember, married to Edie Mayer, who is the daughter of Louis B. Edie is the sister of Irene Mayer, who at this point is almost the ex-wife of David O. Selznick. All of that coming in a future story. But, of course, Natalia charms William Getz, and naturally she is signed in a half of a hot minute and also at this time given a new Hollywood name. Natalie, that one's easy enough, transitioned from Natalia and Wood as a last name in honor of the director Sam Wood, and at six years old, a star is born. And hey, Natalie Wood's first movie is with Orson Welles. This is 1946, and the film is Tomorrow is Forever. This is made right at the end of Orson's marriage to the ever-marvelous Rita Hayworth too. So many threads. And Natalie's life in this business that we call show is set. Without much regard to Natalie's actual feelings about it, I dare say. This is Mud's dream and Mud will use Natalie's career to very much exert a level of control on her daughter that some could argue borders on dangerous. Mud often goes to cruel measures to get the performance needed from the kid as mom is going around with her and supervising her. She's the set mom getting a salary too. It is Miracle on 34th Street in 1937 that makes Natalie Wood a real star at the age of nine years old. And Dad, who was okay to do this nonsense when no one actually knew his kid, but after Miracle on 34th Street, at this point, old world Dad is a little bit threatened by it all. You'll see many unhealthy parental influences on both sides of this sweet child. Natalie will, however, is a preteen, because by the time she's 12, y'all, she's made 14 movies. Just think about that. From the age of six to the age of 12, Natalie has made 14 films. Incredible. Natalie, having made 14 films as a preteen, has been on the set quite a lot, and will spot one of these fine days a super handsome young actor who was known at that time as the king of the Bobby Soxers. His name is Robert Wagner, and Natalie will tell her mother on that day that Robert Wagner is the man that she's going to marry. Natalie Wood has a new poster on her wall. Natalie is now the main breadwinner of the family. 14 movies in six years, right? Natalie doesn't know how to be a kid. Natalie's never had the chance to be a kid. You really do have to feel for her, a resentful father, a domineering stage mother. Mom is so domineering that she'll set Natalie up in situations where the child is unaware of what's about to happen. There's a legendary and not in a good way infamous scene for the film The Green Promise where Natalie Wood is crossing a bridge without the knowledge that that bridge is about to go out from under her. Add to this, there's rushing water coming across the bridge, and Natalie Wood is terrified of water, but Mom is very utterly concerned about Natalie's terror being real. Natalie Wood will fall as the bridge is meant to do without her knowledge. Natalie will create the perfect amount of terror needed for the scene, and also lay the groundwork for a lifetime of psychopathy about water, but also in that scene, Natalie will break her wrist. As Natalie must stay on set, that wrist break is never set properly. This is the reason why you'll never see Natalie Wood without a bracelet on her left wrist. By the time Natalie's starting high school, she has starred in 17 movies, more years than she's been alive. And now we're going to begin to answer the inevitable question in Hollywood when it comes to making a successful transition from child star to leading lady, how can it be done? This for Natalie is going to come in the year 1955 at just about the same time that Dad and Mud are using Natalie's 17 Films money to build the family a new home on Lookout Mountain This home is on Woodrow Wilson Drive, and the family has big ideas. Let's do a little real estate walkthrough. The home is built in English country style, coming in right under 6,000 square feet, topping out about 5,900 square feet. The home currently has five bedrooms and five and a half bathrooms, but the original property records do reflect six bedrooms and seven bathrooms. There have been a variety of owners through the decades, so not really a surprise at all that the room count in the home has changed based upon renovations through seven decades. The home is gated, it has lovely grounds, and a built-in pool. The fantastic bit about Natalie's pool, as since Ala Nazimova, you've got to have a pool feature. This pool has a mermaid inlaid in tile into the stonework at the bottom of its surface. And why wouldn't the family be building it this time in Laurel Canyon? In the mid-1950s, it's a perfectly wonderful place to build a home. Laurel Canyon is gorgeous. It is literally five minutes away from the Sunset Strip. Laurel Canyon now has east-west cut-throughs, north-south cut-throughs as well. It's a much more accessible place to live. Laurel Canyon has also been the Hollywood home, made famous by celebrities now for three decades. But the thing for Natalie in the mid-1950s, all of her friends live in Laurel Canyon too. These are the up-and-comers of the day. Marlon Brando, James Dean, Dennis Hopper. This is where all of Natalie's friends are. This means a lot of boys, a lot of pool parties. Just envision this scene in 1955. Incredible. 1955 is also the year that Natalie will land the part she really wants, that she believes will propel her career trajectory in a way that she would like to direct, and not necessarily directed by her mother. This film is Rebel Without a Cause, co-starring James Dean, which in 1955, for her parents, is a downright scandal. Your image will be ruined, they say. Natalie will audition and Natalie will land that role. Natalie will also get her first Academy Award nomination from the film as well. But her parents, overprotective. And Natalie's making things happen because she's almost an adult. She's 17. Her whole family is still living in the home that her money has built. Dad is increasing his amount of alcohol intake. Mud is still domineering. Natalie will date a whole lot at this point, even though her father will follow her out on her dates. And Natalie's skirt would be inspected every night when she comes home from dates for any kind of inappropriate wrinkles in her clothing. Her skirt is checked after dates with Raymond Burr. Perhaps Frank Sinatra, that's rumored about. Natalie also dates Elvis. That date doesn't go too well, Natalie finds Elvis, according to her, pretty old-fashioned and kind of a mama's boy. And Natalie Wood is looking for a real love. And enter back into the scene, Robert Wagner, R.J. to his friends. R.J. is eight years older than Natalie, born in Detroit, and he is known from birth. R.J. has that he wants to be a star. Like even walking his dog, down his ordinary street as a child he acts like he's in the movies just to get attention there's never been a day of rj's life where he has not wanted to be a star and after some decidedly not success by the early 50s the look that rj has is absolutely the thing rj's the king of the bobby soxers he's handsome he's charming and RJ has been described as one of those kind of people who is so charismatic that you are the only person in the room when he's talking to you. RJ's a charmer. RJ wants to be a star, and maybe RJ's always looking for his way up on this path to stardom. So it is in July of 1956 that RJ, 26 years old, is asked by his studio to take Natalie Wood out for her. 18th birthday. The answer is an easy yes from RJ. Honestly, this is a no brainer. Natalie Wood is the hottest single star in Hollywood. Natalie and RJ's love affair is instant, it is immediate. Of course, it is. Natalie has had RJ as her poster on the wall for a lot of years now. It is in the winter of 1957 in this home on Woodrow Wilson Drive that R.J. will propose to Natalie with a ring that is engraved, Marry Me. He slips it into her champagne glass. He proposes. She accepts. Three weeks later, December 28, 1957, Natalie and R.J. will wed. She is 19. He is 27. Ownership of this home in Laurel Canyon is passed to Natalie and R.J. upon their wedding. And it is in this home that the two begin their married life. It's the scene. They're learning how to be married. Friends are still dropping by. Natalie's learning how to do things on her own without the influences of both parents. It's a learning curve for everyone. Natalie and RJ are going to live here a little while. And it is in this time period while they're living at that home on Woodrow Wilson that Natalie and RJ are the number one couple on the scene. Enter 1958. And it is in this time period that we begin to intersect with Dominic Dunn, as well as his wife, Lenny. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to hear the rest of that story. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? Just keep ar- it simple. Uh, I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Rob, bros. Good job. Dominic and Lenny Dunn will meet Natalie and RJ at a glamorous and exclusive party in the private room of Romanoff's. This is the ultra swanky fancy club owned by Gloria and Mike Romanoff, who will style himself as Prince Michael Romanoff. That's another great story for another day. But Romanoff's, the restaurant that Mike and Gloria own, is legendary. It is opened in 1941 and reigns for two decades in Hollywood. Romanoff's does close in 1962, but for a solid 21 years, it is the place to see and be seen. This is the hot spot Romanoff's, located on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Investigators, once Romanoff's closes in 1962, it will become the location of the Daisy. It is here in 1958 that the Dunns, having just moved to California, will meet Natalie and RJ. Natalie and Lenny strike up a close friendship and the two will remain close friends throughout their lives. This first time around, marriage is not the one that sticks for Natalie and RJ. She is young. He is not too accommodating with her trying to figure things out. There's a lot of pressure to a young couple just trying to figure it out. They form a production company and her career is very important to her. It's kind of the only thing she's ever had. And there's inevitably a struggle between career and marriage. Natalie will also begin therapy at this point in her life. R.J. doesn't really understand that one either. There are two theories about how it all goes south between the couple. One is that Natalie's co-star in Splendor in the Grass, Warren Beatty, is perhaps responsible for the discord between the couple. The other theory is perhaps that Natalie has caught her husband in a compromising position with their butler. Either way or both ways that it happened, their marriage is done by 1961, finalized and completed by 1962. Natalie Wood retains ownership of the home on Woodrow Wilson. And Natalie, post-divorce from 1962 to 1969, is living the single life. She will proceed to immediately go on to date Warren Beatty, which doesn't work out too great for Natalie. Not surprising if you know of Warren Beatty's reputation at the time. But Natalie, swing and single, she's doing some extraordinary work here in her career. West Side Story, Gypsy. Gypsy is based on the story of Gypsy Rose Lee, another famous resident within our Laurel Canyon community. We'll get to Gypsy Rose Lee too, I promise. It is in this time frame, That Natalie is going to get a new assistant and friend with even more Dominic Dunn connections here. Mark Crowley, who's now a quite successful writer, was not all the way back then. Back in 1957, Mark Crowley, after his graduation, heads on out to New York City where he'll eventually land a production assistant job to get another gig, to get another gig, which gets Mark Crowley to Elia Kazan. Eliya Kazan offers Mart a job as his personal assistant on the set of Splendor in the Grass. It is here that Mart Crowley and Natalie would meet, and they become friends. When West Side Story comes along, Natalie will hire Mart Crowley as her assistant and bring him out to California. Natalie knows that Mart wants to be a writer, and she knows she can help him with his career, She knows working for me doesn't take all that much time, and this job will also give you time to write the things you want to write. Mark Crowley remains Natalie Wood's personal secretary from 1964 to 1966, giving him a very distinct insight into a very interesting community, Tightly Bound, the social scene, the Hollywood set, and Dominic Dunn. I do want to keep our story to the community of this Laurel Canyon home here, but there are so many good bits to drop. This mid-1960s time period is all the beach parties at Roddy McDowell's on weekend afternoons. It's the swinging hotspot scene of Hollywood in the mid-1960s. Ciro's is about to be rebranded and reopened. It is the beginning of the Daisy as well. Many folks will say that the nation changed that November day in 1963 with Kennedy's assassination. But for Hollywood, my better guess, it is the August 1969 tragedy on Sileo Drive in Benedict Canyon. Mid 60s, still pretty good times for Hollywood where everything is open door and everyone is connected until they're not. It is in 1967 that Mark Crowley is unceremoniously dropped off a movie project and is at a pretty low point in his life. Mart had left Natalie's employ for a gig at Paramount. Mark Crowley will say, He had an office but nothing to do. On days when I didn't have one martini too many, I'd fall asleep reading or start a project of my own. One of those was the Seed for Boys." He would be referring here to his groundbreaking play, The Boys in the Band. Crowley continues, The idea of setting it among a gathering of gay friends had been rolling around in my head. But the idea of setting it at a birthday party came when I attended one. Interesting collection of people. In the end, the characters are based on people I knew. Mark Crowley wants to write a screenplay about gay men, his life, his friends, his people. But no one in 1967 is writing about gay men. And Crowley's portrait is not exactly a flattering one, but the idea that he has is real and it's organic. He says of this time, quote, I had sold a screenplay to 20th Century Fox, which was canceled even as the sets were being built. I then wrote a pilot for four-star television starring Betty Davis that was shot but never shown nor picked up by the sponsor. And then I was engaged to do a screenplay at Paramount and actually got fired from that because they didn't like my work. I mean, one hit after the other. Crowley sublets his apartment. He's thinking about just heading on back to New York, leave the California dream behind. He'll say, I was house-sitting for a friend, Diana Lynn, who had this big mansion with lots of household help. I was living a life of luxury, having my meals prepared and my laundry done, so I just began to make some notes about what was in my head. I didn't know what it was or where it would go. I typed the words, boys in the band, and it never stopped until I got to the last scene about five weeks later. Boys in the band is from a Judy Garland line within her 1954 version of A Star is Born, the 1970s version will very much heavily involve Dominic Dunn's brother, John Gregory Dunn, and his sister-in-law, Joan Didion. That story's coming one day soon, too. I want to go ahead and get back to Mark Crowley and add a little bit here where it intersects with our man Nick. By 1967, he says... I was fairly washed up and no longer the new kid on the block. I was drinking heavily, very anxious, and in a very precarious mental state. My friends were concerned about me, and I remember telling Dominic Dunn, who was then the vice president of four-star television, that I was thinking about writing a play about eight homosexual men at a birthday party. Dominic wasn't quite sure whether I was serious or not, But he thought it would be great therapy for me to keep working. And he cautioned, Should the play not be produced, don't let it throw you. I think it was out of some concern that if I failed too, I would just wind up in a hospital. The other way Mark Crowley tells of this Dominic Dunn influence is this way. As Dominic is one of the very first people that Mark Crowley tells about boys in the band. Crowley says Dunn said, We'll do it. It'll be wonderful therapy for you. But, Mart, you know, if there are no takers, don't have a nervous breakdown. He was very encouraging, but I think realistic. The Playboys in the Band will premiere off-Broadway beginning April of 1968 at the Theater Four. The show will run for more than 1,000 performances as one of the first close-to-mainstream works that centers around the lives of gay men. This is 1968, friends. Stonewall has not happened yet. There is no gay movement. Hollywood codes say gay characters are innately evil, bad, corrupt, and most need to die or just disappear when they're on film. Boys in the Band, just as a breakthrough, will lead to so many other works by so many other folks. Torch Song Trilogy, Angels in America. But Mark Crowley... Doing at first, encouraged by his friend Dominic Dunn. The gay community is getting some type of representation, and of course there are accolades, and of course there's some backlash too. But it does set a trend, boys in the band does. The play is not exactly pride-themed, the characters are self-depreciating and often negative, but Mart is writing about what he knows. He says about the criticism of the play and the backlash that he gets, I didn't know what they were talking about at first. I thought, well, gosh, we were just like that. In 1970, Mark's play, The Boys in the Band, will be made into a movie. Again, groundbreaking. Dominic Dunn will serve as one of the film's executive producers. I promise that we're going to get back to the home on Woodrow Wilson, but... I do want to mention a few things here about Natalie Wood, taking these excerpts directly from Dominic Dunn's The Way We Live Then. He is a tremendous fan of Natalie Wood. And when he's writing this, a little bit later in the game, RJ and Natalie have reunited at this point. So taking this from Dunn, their house on North Cannon Drive in Beverly Hills became a drop-in place for their friends. The Wagners were stars who lived like stars. Natalie had real glamour. When she went out to a party or a premiere, she always looked like a million bucks, with her great diamond drop earrings flashing. Elia Kazan, who had directed her in Splendor in the Grass, often stayed in their guest house. Natalie used to stand behind the bar, mixing drinks, looking great and with a cigarette in a holder always having a good time. She was fun and she was funny and she always knew the latest Hollywood dish and I loved to listen to dish. My scrapbooks are full of her pictures. She had a wonderful habit of putting on her lipstick after dinner using the blade of her knife as a mirror, a gesture I have used in two of my books. Hey, investigators, do you know what two books these dinner knife and lipstick mentions are used in? Let me know if you know them. Email me and I'll send you a present. There's your secret clue. First one to grab it gets a good gift. Dominic Dunn, as we talked about last episode, is getting all of his photography penchant on, courtesy of taking pictures for both Natalie and Mia Farrow's private parties, remember? This would have been early to the mid-1960s, continuing his scrapbooking fixation, and how grateful we all are for that. Dominic Dunn, if you remember, in the end of his Hollywood first act in the mid-70s, sells everything. His car, his dog, his furniture. And at the dregs of the end of his apartment sale, there is a set of coasters that Dominic Dunn has made from his photographs over time. One of those coasters is Rosalind Russell dancing. Another coaster shows a photograph of Cecil Beaton eating his first ice cream ever with a spoon. Another one of those coasters is Natalie Wood applying her lipstick using her dinner knife as a mirror. Oh, Dominic was a tremendous fan of Natalie Wood's, and honestly, who isn't? Natalie Wood will die in a tragic nighttime boating accident, November 29th, 1981, at the age of 43. Dominic Dunn, to my knowledge, has not written about the suspicions that surround her death. However, he will write in The Way We Lived Then about a few things that I want to close with today. I think this next... Story does bring home not only community and colony within this very small Hollywood world, but also friendship. Mark Crowley truly is a friend to the end for Natalie Wood, and and so are a few other meaningful souls that will interconnect in so many different webs. This is Dominic Dunn writing about Natalie's passing and these magnificent souls being friends to the end. Years later, following Natalie's terrible drowning death off the Wagner's yacht at Catalina Island, Mart played an extraordinary role. He was with the heartbroken R.J. and the three daughters at the house on North Cannon Drive after R.J. flew back from Catalina. Natalie's daughter Natasha insisted on seeing her mother's body, and no amount of objections from adults in the house could dissuade her. Mart offered to go to the morgue first to view the body, which had been recovered from the sea. When the slab was pulled out, he at first did not realize it was Natalie after having been in the water for more than 12 hours. She was virtually unrecognizable. Mart said to me later recounting it, I could not let her be buried looking like that. She was a star. Being a star meant everything to her. Acting quickly, he had the body released to the Pierce Brothers mortuary in Westwood. He went back to the house and picked out clothes for her to wear, a high-necked blouse, pantyhose, and so on. He enlisted the help of Howard Jeffrey, a dancer who had become Natalie's secretary after Mart and who was also her great friend. Her makeup artist on the picture she was making at the time, and Sidney Gilleroff the great MGM hairdresser who had done the hair and been the confidant to such stars as Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, Ava Gardner, Lana Turner, and Natalie herself. Sydney also did Marilyn Monroe's hair after her death. These four men, all of whom loved her, held her as they pulled on her pantyhose, dressed her, made her up, coiffured her, and returned her to her beauty. Mart then assured RJ that it would be all right for Natasha to see her mother. When Natasha came to the funeral home with Mart, she carried a letter to her mother, in which she placed in her mother's hands. She asked to be left alone. When she came out, she said, I want my mother to be buried in her diamond earrings. They went back to the house and got the earrings as well as a fox fur coat that R.J. had bought for her, but had not yet given her. She was a movie star to the end. Dominic Dunn is not quite done with his love for Natalie Wood. In addition to a few of the other players we have mentioned, Dominic Dunn will write that every time when he is in Hollywood and goes to visit his daughter Dominique's grave at Westwood Cemetery, Dominic will also stop in to say a prayer at the grave of Natalie Wood as well. There are a few more folks in Dominic Dunn's prayer circle at Westwood Cemetery. Marilyn Monroe and Peter Lawford have been included in that number as well. Both of those stories coming your way too. Mark Crowley will say that Natalie Wood once told him if she were to write an autobiography, it would be called... I got what I wanted. Bless her heart, I do hope that's true. Natalie Wood is remembered as a goddess and an angel, and I am absolutely part of her fan club. Oh, investigators, how intricate the webs we weave, and we've only half woven this story so far. Dominic Dunn wrote of those days when Natalie and RJ had reunited and moved into North Cannon She's fun and funny at the bar. North Cannon is westward, right smack in the middle of Beverly Hills, off Rodeo Drive and Santa Monica Boulevard. The Wagners, Natalie and RJ, have long moved out of the Laurel Canyon scene. Natalie will sell that home on Woodrow Wilson to a friend of hers in the 1960s, as Laurel Canyon isn't quite the place it used to be. There's way less old Hollywood there and way more new Bohemian culture coming into play. You've got musicians and artists, a very different scene that Natalie's moved beyond. She's more of a Beverly Hills girl now. When Natalie Wood is ready to offload this home, who comes a-calling? Another goddess, my muse, a legend. Cass Elliot of the Mamas and the Papas comes along and she has landed herself. Cass has some significant music money and is looking to buy a home in Laurel Canyon. Seriously, everyone is connected, y'all. Which is where, and continuing back for the second half of this home, is where we will return on our next episode of Done and Done, back to this home on Woodrow Wilson, Cass Elliott and all the rest of its famous players, as well as the Dominic Connections too. Thank you so so much for tuning in today. If you're looking for a little bit more Dominic Dunn content, you can check out Patreon.com slash Dunn and Dunn for bonus episodes over there. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support, your kind reviews, your emails. So many fun things coming up, friends. I can't wait until we meet again, but until we do, stay curious, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.